Welcome! Thank you for joining us tonight here in the American Restoration Tour. My name is Pastor Micah Beckwith. I am the campus pastor here at Life Church. And boy, God is doing an amazing thing in Indiana. He's waking people up. He's engaging his church to be the true speakers out in a world that, that is on fire right now. We see it all over the place in our own world, but also across the seas as well. And so, but it is our job to stand for truth. So thank you for being here. You're going to be equipped tonight to be able to know truth and to be able to speak truth out because we know when people know the truth, the truth will set them free. Amen. Amen. Hey, let me pray for us and we're going to dive in. Would you bow your heads and pray with me? Heavenly Father, thank you so much for being a God who is so awesome. We love you and we give you the praise and glory that you richly deserve in this place uh, tonight, Father. We ask that you would open our ears. You said often in your word, whoever has ears, let him hear. And tonight, God, I pray that all of us in this room have those ears that you are, are calling us to have so we can hear from you tonight. Would you equip us, God? Would you teach us? Would you give us knowledge and understanding, just like Solomon asked for, knowledge and wisdom so we can lead people well? Lord, speak through David Barton, speak through Chad Connolly, and God, empower us to go out and speak your truth to everyone we encounter from this day on. We love you. It's in Jesus' mighty name we pray, and everybody said, amen, amen. amen. All right. Well, hey, before we jump into an amazing night with Chad Connolly, the founder of Faith Wins, and then obviously with David Barton, the founder of Wall Builders, we want to highlight a few people in this room right now that are running for office. They're feeling the call of the Lord to run for office. So we've got some congressional candidates in the room, and I want to, uh, I'm going to ask them to come up and, uh, and share just a little bit about who they are. So first and foremost, we got a guy, we're going to start with the third congressional district. Now, how many of you know where the third congressional district is? Anybody? Just shout it out if you know. Fort Wayne. Who said Fort Wayne? All right. All the way from the third congressional district, Mr. Tim Smith. Give it up for Tim. He's going to share a little bit. Thank you. I have very good news. This is going to take 30 seconds because almost nobody in here can vote for me anyways. I just want you to know that I've gotten to love Micah. I've been reading David Barton. Oh, I read Original Intent probably in seven or 2008. I'm not sure when he published it, but uh, I am in a room with like-minded people and I've been campaigning now for a few months. That is not always the case. I simply want to say, God bless you. Uh, thank you for coming out and supporting the speaker for supporting Micah. Um, I have a forward slogan. I'm running for Congress to end wokeness and expand freedom. And if I had more than 30 seconds, I'd tell you why, but thank you all very much. I love that. I heard that. I was uh, up in Adams County a few weeks ago, and I heard him say that. I was like, oh, man, this guy's awesome. All right. So, uh, okay, so now we're going to jump into the 5th Congressional District. Anyone know where the 5th Congressional District is? Right here. All right, good. All right, good, good. All right, so uh, first and foremost, I think we have Mark Hurt. Where's Mark? Mark, come on up here real quick. And uh, then on deck, uh, we will have, uh, I think Will's here. Uh, well, actually, I'll, I, Will, you, didn't, you asked me not to say your name. You're representing Chuck. I will say something for Chuck there, okay. But did you just come up right there? How in the world? How did you do that? I can't even do that. That was amazing. Hey, Mark Kerr, give it up for Mark. All right. Thanks, Micah. Yeah. 
Good to be here. I, I uh, grew up in Summitville, Fairmount. I've had a law office in Noblesville for about 25 years. We live in Kokomo and uh, have a law practice there as well. It's good to see one of my colleagues, Gary, there. Uh, we, I went to Taylor University and then Baylor University, close to where uh, Mr. Barton's from, but uh, would love to represent you, conservative, a constitutionalist, and uh, I really believe that we need a fighter for the people, and that's what it's all about. Believe in term limits, I believe in the sanctity of life, and uh, became a Christian in sixth grade in uh, Bible school, and that shapes my values and who I am. So thanks, thanks, Micah, for letting me talk. Yeah, thank you, Mark. Thank you. Appreciate it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> All right, next up, we've got a young man. His name's Max Engling, who's also running for the 5th District. So, Max, come on up here and give it up for Max as he's coming. Thank you very much, Mike. I appreciate that. And I didn't come up here because I'm not as tall as Mark, um, but I still made it up successfully, which is more than we can say for our current administration. And uh, we'll get past that. So, my name is Max Engling. I'm running for the 5th Congressional District here. I'm a Christian. I'm a conservative. I'm married with four kids, and I'd say we put the Christian first. That really is who I am. I grew up in a Christian family. I'm one of eight children. I am the second oldest of eight kids, and so when we started having kids, we essentially just rolled straight through on changing diapers from about 12 on. I've been doing that most of my life. Um, so I'm not a career politician, um, but I have dedicated about the last 14 years of my life to public service, both here in Indiana on a campaign level, um, interning downtown, but then also out in Washington, D.C. And I've seen a lot of folks that are trying really hard in Congress, that are really conservative and doing good things in Congress. But I've also seen a lot of people that are out there for the wrong reasons. They're out there that essentially just to make money for themselves or other things, just get on TV. And that's really frustrating to me. And so when there was an opportunity to say, how do, what can I do to use what I know and continue that public service element, this district came open. And I prayed, I talked with my wife, we felt a lot of peace and guidance from the Lord to say, now's the time to move home where my family is, where her family is, where we got married and our kids were born, to say, let's go give an honest shot to this and try and use what I know um, for the Lord and for the people of the 5th District that I appreciate the most. So I have more information out back. I would love to talk with anybody at any point, um, but I appreciate you all. Thank you and appreciate it. I got to uh, sit down with Max the other day, and uh, I love like what he said. He's been uh, out in D.C. He has been working uh, behind the scenes, and, and congressmen will usually tap him to go in and actually work through the minutia. He probably actually knows how to be a congressman better than most congressmen do, uh, and just because he's one of the guys that's been doing the, the heavy lifting. So, And he goes to my in-laws church over at Harbor Shores, which is another great Bible-preaching church. So uh, get to know uh, Max, get to know Mark. And then, uh, then Will, would you just stand up? Will McGinnis. So Will is representing Chuck Goodrich. Uh, give it up for Will. And Chuck is also running for the 5th District. I've known Chuck for a number of years. Went to White River Christian Church with Chuck. And, and Chuck is uh, really, uh, he really has been a great state rep in a lot of ways down at the State House. Uh, and so get to know Chuck. Get to uh, ask him the, the tough questions. Uh, you know, let him know we want a fighter, a conservative fighter. And, and so we've got some, really, we've got some great candidates around the state and specifically here in the 5th District, which is really important that the primaries are robust. 
We want robust primaries because that's how we get the best candidates in the in the in the November election. So, uh, are there any other people running for office locally or statewide that are in the room right now, or maybe office holders? If you're here and that's you, would you stand up? We got Darren running for Carmel or Mayor in Carmel. Get up for Darren. Get to know Darren. He's a great guy. He's really pushing back on the uh, establishment system. Uh, anybody else? Anybody else? Just want to make sure we're not missing. Okay, great. Well, on that note, uh, it is my great privilege to introduce our first speaker for the night. He is a friend of mine. He has been somebody that has seen the, uh, the lack of engagement within the church when it comes to civic duty and public service. I got to know Chad a few years ago, and Chad was the former South Carolina GOP chairman. So he's known nationally around the country. He was tapped to be the church engagement coordinator for the National uh, Republican Party. Uh, he was, uh, he's, he's really a, a wise uh, mentor to so many younger people coming up in public service, but he felt the call of the Lord, and he'll, he'll explain a little bit more about it here in a second, but he felt the call of the Lord to get the church engaged, get the church to do their job in stewarding our republic. We have, for the last 50 years, we've abandoned our duty to stand for truth in the public sphere, and a lot of pastors will say, well, politics and, and religion are separate, Politics and faith are separate. And I love what Chad, he, he said something a few years ago when I got to know him. He said, you know what? We're not asking pastors to be political. We're asking pastors to be biblical. And I was like, amen, brother. And he said, Micah, abortion is a biblical issue. Marriage is a biblical issue. Border sovereignty is a biblical issue. Taxes are biblical issues. God has addressed all of these issues. And pastors need to do their job and get the church engaged. And that's what I love about Chad Connolly. And he started Faith Wins, and he's engaging and encouraging pastors all over the country to get engaged. So without further ado, would you please help me welcome to the stage Mr. Chad Connolly. Y'all give this guy a hand. Thank y'all so much for having me. I love your pastor. You got a great pastor. And um, y'all better take care of Micah Beckwith and Nathan. You know, if we had more pastors like this, we wouldn't be in a mess, right? Would y'all agree we're in a mess? Did you ever think we'd have these kind of conversations? And I don't know, there's probably kids in here with those lights. I can't really tell. But I, so I'll abbreviate. Did you ever think we'd have to explain to people why boys shouldn't go to girls' bathrooms? Did, did you ever think... I, I never thought. Did you, did you ever think we'd have to explain why men dressed scantily shouldn't be doing what they're doing in libraries? Did you ever think? And, and we're having these supposedly real conversations because the church has disappeared, just like Michael said. We've not done our role. You know, I, I think that the media and the left, and I don't mean to repeat myself, but the media and the left have kind of taught us into how we respond. People who don't even love the Lord, don't even know the Lord, have told us as Christians, hey, you know, you Christians, you're really good at, you know, the soup kitchens and the vacation Bible school, but you shouldn't be involved in politics. You're going to offend somebody. And we put on our turn the other cheek Jesus because we don't want to offend anybody. We're the very ones who want to reach them, right? And instead, I think we better find our turn the tables over Jesus. We're getting our teeth kicked in. We're losing the country because people who don't even know the Lord and hate America are taking it away for selfish reasons. They're the useful idiots in the world today who are just standing in the place. It's just a cultural Marxism going on. 
And so I want to give you a little bit of background of what we're doing and why and why I'm running around the country. This is the 24th state we've been in this year doing meetings like this. And we do pastor meetings and breakfasts and lunches and we do group meetings like this at churches like y'all's in the evenings. And tomorrow we leave for New Hampshire. We got several meetings in New Hampshire the next couple of days. Uh, I forget where I was last week. Last night I was in my home state of South Carolina doing a pray and stand and vote uh, for Israel, support Israel meeting uh, in our home state of South Carolina last night. We'll talk about that. And, um, but to give you a little bit of background, and I really, really appreciate Mike and his leadership and Nathan and what they've done here. And I know y'all are so far ahead of most congregations because you are looking to do things the biblical way. Just how does God say we should respond to this? But I'm going to show you a quick video about what we've been doing with Faith Wins, and I'm going to come back and tell you about this and set up this whole talk tonight. Our goal is really simple. We're laser beam focused on maximizing Christian vote. Jesus ain't running. Therefore, you're always voting for the lesser of two evils. You're voting for imperfect people. We don't tell them who to vote for, how to vote, but we tell them to vote biblically. See, this is where local races make a difference. We keep looking at national news, and we're not even aware of what's happening at the local level, and this is where victories are occurring. How can you possibly claim to be a leader for Christ if you are too afraid? We have a problem in America right now. People say they're Christians, and I hear this all the time, when they'll say to me, you know, what do we do? Get on your knees and pray like you've never prayed before. Straighten your own life up and speak only the truth and prepare to stand. Here's what we are good at. We are good at coming to events and going, wasn't that a good event? And then we go and we forget about it. I'm asking you to take some time to pray about what God would have you do. This not would be an event, but it would be a lifestyle of change for the church to step into her destiny. Do you hear what I'm saying? This is our hour. You know what to do. We wish maybe that we could be a, a part of the founding. Well, this is it. We're in a unique spot, maybe a once every generational time where people are just, man, they're hungry. I can tell you, something's going on out there. We love the Lord and we want to take our nation back. And that's my challenge to you is go be the iron. We can't do this alone. We're just trying to do our part. And we believe if we wake up the church and get pastors to take their regular role of leadership in the community, we wouldn't have this stuff going on. Because we as Christians have stepped out of it. I remember when I first heard the statistic from George Barna and David Barton, and I'm going to introduce you to him in just a little bit. There are like 82 million people sitting in church on a typical Sunday. Only 31 million of them vote. By everybody's definition, despite how they categorize us as believers, some 40 to 50 million people who proclaim the name of Christ don't even go vote. And my question for them is, how do you be salt and light? How do you possibly become salt and light as Jesus told us to be? And listen, scripture is pretty clear. If you're not salt, then you're good for nothing to be thrown in the street and trodden before the feet of men. Now, I don't know about you, that sounds like a bad day to me. And so I got moved to get involved in this. I'll give you a little bit of my background so you understand this. I'm not from here, from just south of here. I live in a little town called Prosperity, South Carolina. There's a famous road sign where we live. It says Clinton to the left and Prosperity to the right. And I, I live over here. And uh, it's a thriving megalopolis. We have five or 600 people now counting the animals. And 
We're growing. We have a traffic light now. Sometimes there's cars there. And um, I grew up, had a drug problem early on. My daddy drug me to church and drug me to youth group. And uh, my dad did not have time out. It was wear out. Belt clear and loop. Here comes Bruce. And after a while, your brain and behind have a conversation that obedience is better than sacrifice. And you go, I like that. And my dad's my hero. I spent the weekend with him. We, we barbecued a bunch of pigs and put them over the open fire and just had a fantastic family time. And He's 84 and an awesome curmudgeon. You want to talk politics, go see Bruce Conley. But uh, he's my hero. And if I can be one-tenth the man my dad's been to me and taught me how to follow Christ and how to be an example, I'll have lived a pretty good life. And, and so I grew up there in prosperity. And I never doubted my faith, never, never even questioned my patriotism. Went to Clemson, got my degree in engineering, married my college sweetheart, and went in the Army. And the Army really was formative. How, how many of y'all served in the military? How many military veterans out there? Raise your hand. Y'all give them a hand. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. As we would say in South Carolina, freedom ain't free. And it's not free. And, uh, you know, I didn't have to get shot at, but I climbed in and out of an M1A1 tank, which was very cool. And I got to tell you, it was most awesome taking things that were functioning seconds before and blowing them to bits. That was just fantastic. But I'll tell you what it does. It makes you think about what you believe in. I had never been around people that didn't share my faith and my patriotism. And after a while, you're climbing in and out of the tank and you realize they're meant to hurt people and they don't know who it is. They can't identify friend or foe. You start thinking, what's this thing called freedom mean? And you realize people my age and younger died for this place called America. That must be pretty special. And, and you know, I, we don't tell people that are pastors, we need you to charge the beach at D-Day, like lots of people did to earn our freedom. But it, they just need to get involved in the process, right? And, and if freedom's worth it, and other people are willing to die for it, shouldn't I do my part? I, I, I'm totally unrelated and don't understand how people don't think it's their obligation as Americans and Christians to do their part to keep this foundation pure and right. But they don't. A lot of them don't. Let's face it, they hate us. And so I'm in the army and I started reading biblical worldview books. I met this guy, David Barton. I started reading his stuff. That's 30 years ago. I started questioning what I believe in, not in a bad way, but figuring it out. What does biblical worldview mean? It means don't look at the polls or the experts or the TV pundits. What's the Bible say about this issue and how do I examine that? Well, my boys came along in 97 and 2000 and pretty much grew up pacifier in the mouth and a sippy cup in the hand and vote for somebody sign because I felt like I got to get involved in politics. I got to make sure Christians get in office because people say, ooh, it's dirty business. Yes. And you know why? Because not a pe enough people who think like you and Micah Beckwith are involved. That's exactly what it is is they don't have a biblical worldview. They have a me, 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 but worldview, not a biblical one. So they do it all out of selfish areas for, for selfish reasons. And that's what's going on in our nation. We've got to step back in the arena. So I felt this call. Uh, I got involved. I got in the pro-life movement. I got involved in the school choice movement. I actually came up here and I visited your school choice program. That was in the early 2000s. Um, my boys and I, we just got involved. My wife and I were doing our part. Uh, I actually ran for state senate where I was reintroduced to the idea of rejection. I mean, I don't know about that. Um, that that's, that's where they put all the numbers in the paper and, and everybody sees how bad you lost. But I, I felt called. I felt I'm supposed to do this. I actually learned a lesson. It wasn't about winning. It was about obedience. God didn't have me run for state senate to win. He had me run for state senate to understand and learn. 
Well, in 05, my wife's mom died and it, it spun Michelle into a depression. And I only tell you this part because I think it's so contextual for what we're going through today. Because it's so easy to be discouraged. Anybody ever been discouraged about this stuff? You ever felt like you were in despair and just like, what am I going to do? I can't make a difference. Well, in 05, when Michelle's mom died, uh, it put her into a depression. She had been through the, the on and off blues, postpartum depression, that kind of thing. Uh, but in 06, it got really bad, and she put a gun in her mouth and pulled the trigger. And uh, left me a single dad with two little boys that saw something nobody should ever see. Uh, we came in from church that Sunday in July of 2006 to find her. Uh, I had spoken at Chick-fil-A the week before. Their corporate headquarters does a Monday morning devotional. Uh, and they had me speak, just a great honor. I was doing a talk on marriage and family. You don't tell people about your wife at home with depression when you're doing a marriage and family talk. You make excuses for why she's not there. When my boys were sitting over here, they were, the whole corporate staff was there. And the boys loved it because they get to eat all the Chick-fil-A sandwiches. Some of y'all have raised boys, and they can eat some groceries, can't they? And CJ was nine, Bennett was five, and I said something I've never said publicly that I ever remember. And here's what I said. I said, you know, I've messed up. I've made mistakes. I've even had business failures. But I'm not going to be a failure before God and man with my wife and my boys. And I looked at the boys, and I remember thinking, that was good, Lord. I'm, I'm going to use that again. That was on Monday morning. On Sunday, the following Sunday, we found her. And as soon as I got to her, they were on my heels. And I pushed them away. Go to your room. Go to your room. And I pulled her to me so they don't see the mess. And I felt the devil say, ha, ha, you failed. As I laid her back down, I felt the Lord tell me this wasn't my plan, but I'm planning for Satan's disruptions. And when I laid her back down, it was Romans 8.28 punched me in the face. I don't know about you, there's times I'm reading scripture, I'm not sure what I read, and there's other times it reaches up and grabs me and gets my attention. You ever had that happen? And I wasn't reading Romans 8, I wasn't studying it, I wasn't teaching it in my Sunday school class. But that day it came off of her, Romans 8.28, and here's what I said. Really, Lord, all things... And y'all know what the scripture says. It says all things. We know all things work together for good of those who love the Lord and are called according to his purpose. Really, Lord, all things. My wife's in the pool of blood. All things? Really? And he asked me if I believed it the day before. I told him I did. He said, I need you to believe it now. Trust me. I told him I would. I had a hard time. I fainted in the casket room. I, 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 hunting for a tombstone wasn't on my list. Nobody wants to go shopping for tombstones. Some of y'all have had to do that. It's not any fun. I had just a few months of just, I couldn't get off the mat. The boys kept me going. But Michelle was my best friend, my dream. I mean, we got married. We were college kids. We didn't know nothing. We were just, we grew up in life together. Those next few months, though, I had a buddy on my pro-life board who kept after me. And he, he said to me, this is like six months later, you got to meet this girl. I'm like, man, get out of my face. I love you, J.D., but, I mean, leave me alone. I'm not, I'm having a hard time. And he persisted, and he finally got my grill, and he said, Chad, I've been watching you speak for years. You're Mr. Positive. This is not going to beat you. And he asked me that question that and nobody likes when people use your words against you. <laughs> he said, you know that talk you do about counting your blessings? I do. He said, go read your notes. Yeah. And I did. And I went home, and I wrote 103 blessings to focus on the positive, not the negative. The Lord gave me three very, spe very specific prayers. I went back the next month, and he said, you got to beat this girl. I said, what's her name? He said, Dana. I said, how'd she get single? Because I'd never prayed for a widow. I prayed not to have a guy in the picture. That was my specific prayer. 
never thought about a widow. He hung his head and he said, oh man, same way you did. Her husband killed himself almost two years to the day before my wife. She had two little girls, they were two and four, when their dad killed himself. And uh, by that time they were four and almost seven. And so six months later, Dana and I met, obviously we fell in love, we got married, that's 16 years ago. We are blessed and highly favored, and here's why I tell you the story. I got to watch God work. I wouldn't have given y'all nothing to stand here anywhere else encouraging anybody about anything. I just, I, I lost it. I, I lost everything, all, every, every bit of confidence, every bit of belief. I lost it all. And God proved to me he wasn't done with me. Here's my message to you. He's not done with you either. You're here. He's not done with your church, and he's not done with our America. He doesn't need any of those things. He's going to accomplish his purposes. But the fact is, he's not done with us. Do not let people talk you into you're done. It's over. There's nothing you can do. Give up hope. Run for the hills. That's ridiculous. God still has plans for us if we're willing vessels. And the only ability God requires is availability. And I told him I'd be available. Now, I didn't want Romans 8.28 to be true in my life. I mean, you know, we want it to be true. But we don't want that to come out. How do you get good out of that, Right. How do we get good out of the stuff going on in our society? I don't know, but God's got a plan because we know all things work together for good of those who love the Lord and are called according to his purpose. That's a fact. That is right out of the Bible. And if we believe the Bible's the inerrant, perfect word of God, then we believe that's true. Even in the depth of despair, I believe it was true, and I told him it was. Well, guess what? We can look at our country and think the same thing. And that's my message to y'all. He's not done with us. I got back involved in politics. When Dana comes along, we get married. Our kids are now 26, 24, 22, and 21. We are blessed and highly favored. Well, I, I get back involved. I run for state party chairman in 2011. Uh, Y'all probably know South Carolina is the first in the South primary state. So I had a front row seat to the whole process. And what I saw was the political party that I was a part of as a state party chairman ignored and diminished the faith vote. And I know numbers pretty good. I look at numbers all the time. I look at polling. I look at data. I, I, I know them pretty good. You know that the evangelical vote is the largest, most reliable vote for the conservative side? It's 32% of the general election vote and 52% of the primary vote in most states on average. And yet they're ignored. They're, they're taken for granted. And so that was my speech. And I, because South Carolina is such a big spotlight on it for those months, and it's about to be the same thing, I did every political show on television. Everyone, I did ABC, CBS, NBC, all the alphabet soups, CNBC and MSNBC, CNN, Fox News. And by the way, all the media is not liberal. Y'all need, don't buy into that. That's just an embellishment. It's only like 96% of them. It's not all. <laughs> I was doing MSNBC with Al Sharpton. It's true, I was. I'm not promoting it, Micah. Not promoting MSNBC. <laughs> And I, I, I was giving my speech. You got, they got to come to South Carolina. They can't ignore the faith vote. But I was beating up my own party for diminishing y'all's vote. And I said, you know, we ought to be talk, talking to Christians. It's the most reliable vote. It's not that they want to be R's or D's. They do want to vote values. They do want to vote for the person that most closely aligns with their biblical worldview. And just like Micah said, I told people, it's not about uh, politics, it's not about a personality, it's not about a party, it's about policies and principles that align with the biblical worldview. I said in the video, Jesus is not running. You don't always vote for lesser two evils. They're human beings. They're sinners just like me and you. So don't look at person or the glitzy ad. What do they believe in and what do they stand for? I think right now we ought to ask every politician, 
where do you stand on this Hamas thing? And if somebody will not full-throated condemn beheading of babies and murder of innocents, I don't want to have nothing to do with them. And they won't take a stand for that. If they think it's okay for boys to go to girls' bathrooms, we need to find out and not vote for them. I've never voted for somebody who would kill a baby in a mommy's tummy. I will fall on that one because life matters. Because God created life in his image with special purpose and plan for that life. That is why we believe in that. That was my theme, and a guy named Reince Priebus saw me on Al Sharpton's show. I was one of his 50 state chairmen. I knew Reince. Y'all know him, the guy with a funny name. It was Trump's first chief of staff. He texted me. I, I didn't know the guy. I had my cell phone. He said, hey, I'm a believer too. We ought to talk. I agree with you. You're exactly right. Let's talk. And I just really beat up the party. You know, the experts like Karl Rove had t- led us to successfully lose twice. I was just irritated. You know, why, why are you ignoring the faith vote? Let me talk to him. I'm a Christian first. I'm a Sunday school teacher, not a pastor. We ought to be talking to pastors. And so Reince called me, and we created a thing called GOP Faith. I got to be the first ever national director of faith engagement. And from 13 to 17, went to 43 states, spoke to about 80,000 pastors and people just like you saying, here's the deal. I don't need you to charge the beach at D-Day, but can you maximize the Christian vote by making sure, number one, everybody's registered to vote. Don't leave your church that everybody in here is registered to vote. Number two, make sure they vote biblical values. Not about a candidate, not about a party, but about policies and principles that align with the biblical worldview. And you know what? I left the RNC. I think I'm the only senior staffer not to go work in the Trump White House, and I started Faith Wins. I just felt called because I believe with all my heart, we need to find a couple thousand Micah Beckwiths. We need to find a couple thousand pastors with a backbone who will stand up and tell the truth by the word of God and not worry about who they're offending. I'm sorry that truth offends, but truth will be offensive. And I'll tell you why, because error hates truth. Error works overtime. You you know, if one of y'all is asked to go pray at the local community college, they're going to say, we'd like you to come down and pray. But what are you going to pray in? Oh, well, I'm going to pray in. If you say, I'm going to pray in goat's breath or eagle's feathers or the wind, they're going to go, ooh, that's wonderful. Love to know more about your faith. But if you say I'm going to pray in the name of Jesus, all hell will break loose because error hates truth because truth reveals error. That's the fight we're in right now. Truth is under attack. And I believe with all my heart, if we can empower pastors, and what I've seen, I've now been to 49 states, spoken to well over 100,000 pastors all over the country from multiple denominations. We did 132 of these meetings in 24 states last year, all over the country. And I believe when we put pastors in a room with other pastors, they get empowered. They see they can work across denominational lines. And I tell them, look, we're losing the country. If we don't link arms, we don't have to agree on how to worship or which version of the Bible to read or how long your service is. But if we don't link arms about the things like religious liberty and life and marriage and Israel and border sovereignty, we have a problem. We won't be able to keep this nation. We're in dire straits right now, and this is our responsibility. And, you know, everywhere I go, people say, I don't know what to do about what's going on. I I do. I, I think God let me do politics at the highest level. I know exactly what to do. And there's two parts. There's how. And why? I can teach them how. Number one, register everybody to vote. Number two, get them to vote biblical values. Our little team got involved in Virginia a couple of years ago. We went to 10 house districts. We registered 77,000 Christians who never voted. 77,000. Never told them who to vote for, how to vote. 65,000 was the vote count that a guy named Governor Youngkin won his seat by in Virginia. It was a shot in the arm to the entire nation. 
They went from a governor who had applauded the death of babies. They wrote a new law that said babies that survive abortions will let them die comfortably. That's wicked and evil. To a guy who prayed in Jesus' name at his own inauguration. That's a big deal. We never told them who to vote for or how to vote. We told them to vote biblically. We even started recruiting poll watchers. Our little team recruited 1,343 poll watchers. You wouldn't believe the stuff we found. I told them, look, for two things. Number one, people over 100 that voted. Not that people over 100 can't vote, but right? That's a flag. Number two, if there are more than six people in a household. One day they called me in Virginia and said, Chad, we found a house. They registered 17 people to vote. What do you think? I said, it's a big house. <laughs> Why don't y'all run down there? It was a field. No structure on the house. Uh, that election commissioner is in jail now. The new attorney general has arrested three. And you know who found them? Our Sunday school classes. Our Sunday school classes. We found a guy in Michigan, Flint, Michigan, named Jason Daniel. Jason voted twice in 2020. We did the forensics afterwards. We just, we, and, and we pulled people over 100. We have pages and pages of people over 100. The first, of the first 200, we found online obituaries for 67. One of them was Jason Daniel. Jason voted twice in 2020. That's awful. Jason's birthday was 1850. <laughs> and I know there's no cheating because they told us there's no cheating. I got that. And, and look, my time machine doesn't work. I, I can't go there. Let's go here. Number one, how. Number two is why. This guy is the best. You're in for a treat because David Barton tells you why Christians have to be involved. He tells you why America is so special. He tells you why and how God's role in America is irreplaceable. We don't have an America. We don't have religious freedom. Do you think somewhere else in the world would have had separation of powers except that they put it by the Bible, by the foundational word of God? No. This guy is simply the best. He and his family own 160,000 pieces of American history, 120,000 pieces before 1812. So if you run into some pointy-headed nerd professor or expert who says, I think the founders, no, 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 David knows. And if you get those people to debate this guy, they're going to lose, so I suggest they bring lunch with them. He's amazing, he's brilliant, he's, he's forgotten more about American history since supper than we've known our entire lives. You are in for a treat. Buckle on tight and get ready for this. Welcome up America's greatest living Christian historian, my buddy, David Barton. Thanks, man. Thanks, guys. Thank you all. Thank you. Thanks, guys. Thank you all. Thanks, guys. Let me start with the Bible verse out of Revelation 1, verses 5 and 6. It's a Bible verse that says, And Jesus Christ hath made us kings and priests unto God and His Father. What's that mean? Well, there may be a lot of meanings, but I can show you what it means in the American story. And the American story is, really, you can find this concept of kings and priests there. And I want to take you back to the founding of the American story. And when you look back at the founding of the American story, there's a book that was done in 1859 by Charles Dickens. It was called A Tale of Two Cities. And that tale of two cities really kind of deals with the first city, Jamestown, and the second city, Plymouth. Those two cities were the first two cities founded in America. Each of those cities became a colony, and each of those colonies had a major impact on the direction of the nation. 
So when you look at America, it is the tale of two cities. It is two, and I wanna start with Jamestown. If you start with Jamestown, Jamestown was founded in 1607, and as those very first colonists landed off the coast, off the east coast, and they came ashore, when they did, they landed at a place called Cape Henry. They named it Cape Henry, and they erected a cross. And when they erected a cross, they knelt down and dedicated the land of the Lord. Now, we know they're Christians because you see that in their documents. For example, the Virginia Charter says that we have done this because it tends to the glory of God's divine majesty and propagating the Christian religion to such as people as live, yet live in darkness and miserable ignorance of the true knowledge and worship of God. No question, that is a very evangelical declaration. Those who came here are here to win people to Jesus Christ. There's people who don't know Christ. They want them to know Christ. That is a very evangelical declaration. However, you find out that Jamestown people, they were not biblical Christians. Now, can you be an evangelical Christian and not be biblical? Yes, real easy. Now, I'll show you how that works. But that's what you have with Jamestown. See, Jamestown is where we, 1619 Project, focus on Jamestown. The number 1619 means Jamestown because they say an incident happened in Jamestown that changed the course of America and that incident actually defined America. This is where we get critical race theory. A lot of states have tried to ban this out of schools. It's like trying to ban the wind. Um, they will call it something else, and they do. They're going to teach what they believe, and teachers will always teach what they believe, and that's why having teachers who have the right content is more important than laws about the right content. I work with states across the nation in doing good standards, good history books, etc. and at this point in time, we can't control any of it, no matter how good we get it, because we don't control the testing. All the testing in every state is done by outside entities, and until you control the test, you won't control the content. So what happens, a lot of this stuff with progressive kind of left-leaning stuff, we've banned it in a lot of states, but it's still being taught because the people who are teachers believe that. So many of them do. So going back to 1619 Project, they say that's when the first slaves landed in America, is Jamestown, 1619, that defined America. Now, I will tell you right up front, the 1619 Project is absolutely historically one of the most historically incorrect pieces we've seen in decades, literally. Uh, for example, 1619, yeah, slaves did land in Jamestown, but what happened was they were on a Portuguese slave ship, and the slave ships would come out of Africa, would leave Europe, they would come over to the east coast of America, go down the Atlantic coast, and they would go down to Cuba, and that's where big slave markets were. And from Cuba, they would have the slave markets, and they would sell the slaves into South America and Central America, the islands, wherever. And so one of those ships was going by the coast of America, and there was a British ship, a British crew, who attacked that ship. It was a Portuguese ship, and they were pirates and they attacked the ship and took all the loot and all the booty and they had 20 slaves they don't know if it's either 19 or 20 slaves the records kind of contradict but we're going to call it 20 slaves it could have been 19 or 20 but 20 slaves and they said what do we do with slaves we don't need slaves we need to go capture another ship and they'll get in our way so they went to the closest colony which was jamestown and they said hey we've got 20 slaves for you you guys want to buy some slaves and jamestown said slavery is illegal in jamestown we're not about to buy any slaves they said, well, we don't want them. We'll just leave them here. So all 20 became free landowners, and they all became people who started sponsoring people to come to America. As it was, one of those guys who was there on that 1619 landing was a guy named Anthony Johnson. A number of years later, in 1653, he had become so prosperous, he had all these people working for him. And one of the guys who was working for him was a guy named John Kaser. And John Kaser, by all historical accounts, is maybe the laziest person that's ever been born on the face of the earth. At least that's what Anthony Johnson believed. So Anthony Johnson went to court and said, look, I've invested so much money in this guy, and he has given me nothing back. Court, I'm asking you, will you let me own this guy for the rest of his life? Because that's the only way I'm ever going to get paid back. And the court said, yeah, you can own him. 
So the first occasion of slavery in America is not 1619, it's 1653. And it actually occurred when a black man sued to own another black man. That is not in the 1619 project. 1619, that's not the year that this stuff happened. So their, their whole thesis is wrong, but that doesn't matter to them because what they said in their documents is we want to reframe American history. We're not trying to tell the story, we're trying to introduce a new story that will tell us that we're a completely different people than we've ever been. So going back to Jamestown, no question, Jamestown is where slavery starts in the American colonies, but it's not 1619, 1653. So with Jamestown, and this, this is, these people had real problems in the sense that they came from Europe. And if you're out of Europe at the time, the kings ran everything in virtually every country. King of Portugal and King of Spain and the King of France and King of Italy and King of Great Britain, King of Scotland. Everybody had kings. And so what that means is you live in a nation where government is really big. And literally the king owned everything. He could take the land away from you, give it to somebody else. He could take it away from somebody else, give it to you. So for all practical purposes, these were socialistic nations that we had in Europe because you didn't have the free enterprise, the private ownership kind of stuff. The government owned everything. And so when these guys get to America on that, as they come to Jamestown, they come out of a mindset that it's big government. And so they rely on the king to give them everything they need. And so the king comes send the supplies. We're here for the king's business. He'll keep us supplied. And that didn't always work. And so in the first two years, their Indian neighbors kept them supplied with food. They were starving a lot of the time, and the king didn't send timely provisions. And so the, their Indian neighbors helped take care of them. And their governor, John Smith, said, guys, the Bible, and he quoted 2 Thessalonians 3.10. He says, the Bible says, if you don't work, you don't eat. And that's the new law in Jamestown. You're going to work because there's going to be a winter that comes along that we're not prepared for. And if we're not prepared, we're all going to starve. So we're going to work. Well, they tried to kill the governor at that point in time, tried to blow him up with gunpowder. So he had to go back to England, get treated for his wounds. So now they come into the third winter. And as they get into the third winter, they don't have enough supplies. And so that third winter is what's called the starving time. It's the winter of 1609, 1610. In that starving time, they went into the winter with a total of 490 people. They came out of with 60 people. So 430 people died in that third winter at Jamestown. Now, what happened is, as they go in and they don't have food, and by the way, they, they had a class system, just like Europe. They had the, the lords and the nobles and the aristocracy, and they had the business owners, and then they had the workers and the yeomen and the slaves. They, they had that class. Not everybody's equal in the Jamestown colony. They, they're doing what Europe does. They're just copying what they grew up with. And so as they get there and they're hungry and they haven't put away food and the king didn't send them any, and the Indians in the third year said, look, we can't keep feeding you guys because we've got to feed our own people and we just don't have the food to give you. So what happened was as they went into that winter with no food to speak of, they eat whatever they had available. So they would eat the rats and the mice and the frogs and the snakes, whatever they get their hands on. That didn't carry them very far. So then they start eating what we would call the pets. They ate the dogs and the cats and other stuff. And that didn't take them far either. And then they ate their own livestock, stuff that's supposed to be producing for them. They ate their horses and their cows and their sheep. And that didn't carry them far enough. And then somebody had the bright idea said, oh, man, we've had so many people die. And we buried them in the cemetery. I bet you there's still some meat on their bones. So they went to the cemetery and dug up the corpses to get the meat off the corpses in the cemetery. And that didn't carry him long enough either. And there was one guy, his wife was pregnant. He actually killed his wife, ate the unborn child, and then ate his wife. As you can imagine, they executed him. And then they ate him after they executed him. I mean, just, 
it, it's twisted in every direction. So this is Jamestown, and what you find from Jamestown is after that winter, they started Indian Wars. We're gonna make the Indians supply us with food. Why don't you go work and get your own? No, 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 we're gonna make them give us food. So they're really bad neighbors, and their belief was anyway, this king's land, he sent us over here, he let us have his land. You guys are on his land, you need to be giving us stuff. So there was no concept of private property ownership, and in so many ways, they were really, really bad neighbors. So what happens is they're elitist, they're socialistic, they're pro-slavery, they're big government, and they, they're group conscious. Not everybody's created equal. There are classes and there are different groups, and that's what characterized Jamestown. So that is the first colony for sure. Now, there are that, the 1619 project, but for tonight, we're gonna say there's a second project. We're gonna call it the 1620 project. That 1620 project is the tale of two cities. It's the other city, and that other city is the Pilgrims. It's an interesting thing about the Pilgrims. Virtually any historical picture you find of the Pilgrims, you will find them gathered around a Bible. This was the center of their life, and the artists knew that, and historically, that's what they saw, and that's what they portrayed. Now, this Bible, if you can see it right there, see how big that is? That is called the world's first pocket Bible. Pocket Bible. Why that? Because prior to that, you had Bibles that were called pulpit Bibles. They were about four times that large, and they were chained to the pulpit of churches. They were generally in a language you can't, couldn't read, like if you're an English speaker, they're probably in Latin, and you can't read Latin, you probably can't even read English because we have a high time of literacy for a thousand years known as the Dark Ages. You have to back up to 390 A.D. In 390 A.D., Emperor Theodosius, who was the emperor of the world at that time, Emperor Theodosius became a Christian. That's really good. Emperor Theodosius then made an announcement. He said, I become a Christian, and you're all going to become Christians, or I'm going to kill you. And that was his announcement. So that's the first time you have a state-established religion. What he did was, I'm the government, and I'm telling you what religion you're going to practice and how you practice it and, and what your faith is going to be. That's the start of it. Now, that goes for the next 1,200 or so years. You, by the time you get to the pilgrims, if you're in France, you're going to be a Catholic. If you're in England, you're going to be an Anglican. If you're in Scotland, you're going to be a Presbyterian. The government tells you what your faith is going to be. That changed with the Reformation. So the Reformation lasts about 250 years. It's, it's roughly 23, 24 individuals in seven different European nations saying, we got to get back to God's Word. What we've been doing is wrong stuff. And in the period of time when it really didn't matter what the Bible said because you can't do it because the king will kill you, why read at all? You don't need to read the, what the Bible says. The king will tell you what you need to know. So that's where we got in that high literacy, which we now call the Dark Ages. Just people couldn't read. And so that's why you didn't have a regular Bible. You had a pulpit Bible. You go to the church if you want to, but you can't read. This is the first Bible you could carry around with you. It came out of Geneva in Europe, and so it's called a Geneva Bible. It's the first English Bible in, in history. So this Bible that you can carry around with you, we have originals of, of this Bible that, that these, these folks brought over with them, and that, that Bible is large, and that Geneva Bible is significant. So what happens is, as they, and by the way, the pilgrims are a single congregation. They're not a group of people or entrepreneurs. They are a church group, and the problem they've had is they've been in England reading this, and the more they read this, the more they say the king is so wrong. That's not what the Bible says, but the king's telling them what the Bible says because he got the state religion, and so they say that's wrong, and so the king is tired of getting criticized, so he persecutes these guys. He actually killed their first pastor, um, killed the first pastor because the pastor made the mistake of saying Jesus Christ is head of the church. And the king said, no, no, 
I'm head of the church. And so he killed their pastor for saying Jesus Christ is head of the church. So these guys end up going to Holland. They live in Holland for 12 years, but they're still reading the Bible. So they're still criticizing the king over in Holland. They're actually doing publications and writing things and publishing things, talking about here's what the Bible says, and that's not what the king says, but here's what the Bible says. So he chases them out of Holland. He's ready to kill everybody, and he makes an agreement with them. He says, if you guys will get completely out of my hair, if you just go to the New World, I'll leave you alone, but get out of here. And so they went to the New World. There's nobody there that speaks their language except down at Jamestown, but where they went to is a different part. So nobody there that they can go to, so they leave. and go. So this is a congregation going. They were on two ships. One of the ships sprang a leak, the Speedwell, so that ship didn't make it. So half the congregation comes, and that's what's on the Mayflower, 102 people. So when they come over on the Mayflower, significantly before they left, their pastor, John Robinson, got them together. There's a congregation that says, all right, when you get over to that new world, don't carry with you all the darkness we've had here in Europe. Do things differently over there. You have a chance to make a fresh start, do things right, do what the Bible says. So that's the challenge he gives them as they leave. And as they're coming to America, one of the things that's clear to them is forms of government. Uh, for example, if you look in the Bible, in Exodus 18, 21, the Bible says, choose out from among you leaders of tens, fifties, hundreds, and thousands. Hey, that's elections. And we would call it local, county, state, and federal elections, leaders of tens, fifties, hundreds, thousands. And the Bible says, and choose able men, such as fear God, men of truth, hating covetousness, men who will rule in the fear of God. That's qualifications for office. So have elections, and here's the qualifications. So this is what they believe, is that when they get over here, they're going to start having elections. We're not going to have this king business going on. We're going to elect our own leaders from among us. Now, before they got off the ship, they created a government charter, which we call the Mayflower Compact. That's the first governing document done in America. And if you look at the Mayflower Compact, it is very Christian. It says, having undertaken for the glory of God and the advancement of the Christian faith, a voyage to plant the first colony in the northern parts of Virginia. And by the way, northern parts of Virginia, if you will look at a map back then, Virginia stretched from the Atlantic to the Pacific, from Mexico to Canada. It was all Virginia. So they're landing in the northern parts of Virginia, which we now call Massachusetts. So their voyage was to the northern parts of Virginia. And so when they, when they land, they say, okay, we're going to choose our own leaders. But you know, the, the Bible doesn't tell us how often we should have elections. What do you think? And so they said, let's do an election every year. So they set up annual elections. So they elected their civic leaders every year. Now, significantly, enacting, elected their civic, their civic leaders every year. Uh, one of the famous governors is, is William Bradford. He was governor for 30 years. He got elected 30 different times to governor. It's got to be a record. Who's ever been chosen governor 30 different times? But their term was one year. And that way they could make a change if they wanted to. And if it's time for somebody else, they can make that change. So they did that. But on top of that, they said, you know, in the Bible, when God gave 613 laws to Israel, including the Ten Commandments, he said, Moses, I want you over the civil stuff. And Aaron, I want you over the spiritual stuff. Now, he's put two people over in, in Europe and everywhere else. It was one person over the religious stuff and the civil stuff. They said, no, God made it really clear too when King Uzziah tried to combine Moses and Aaron's spot and he tried to do both of them, God struck him down, gave him leprosy, he went out and died. God made it really clear, I've got kings and I've got priests and you're not supposed to do both of them, not in one person. It's good to have people who can do that, but you're not supposed to be the one who does both of them. So they started also having annual elections for their pastor. They elected a pastor every year. So they have two different elections, one for the civil 
officials, one for the spiritual officials. And by having elections, that's the first time we ended state-established churches. Because now the governor can't tell you what your faith has to be. And the governor can't tell you what church you have to attend. Now we've got religious freedom. And that's where you find the rise of the rights of conscience and the rise of religious toleration. Because the government can't punish you now for not being part of the right denomination. So that comes from the pilgrims. In addition to what they did with elected government, look at what they did with free enterprise. Because they came over here as socialists. They had grown up in Europe like everybody else. And they were also a church community. So they were what we might call communitarians, like what you'll find in Acts 2 and Acts 4, where they shared everything in common. And Governor Bradford said when they got here, they shared everything in common, but he said they had the same flaws everybody else had. Some among them worked a lot harder than others, and some didn't work at all, but they were taking everything they made and sharing it with everybody in the congregation. And he said it really became clear that that was not the right way. So what they did was they divided everyone in their households and said, you provide for your own household. First Timothy 5, 8, it says, if you don't provide for your own household, you're worse than an infidel and you denied the faith. Suddenly, you provide for your own household. You don't provide for anybody else's. You provide for yours. If you've got charity and want to help somebody, you can, but you have to work. And that's the other verse they used was 2 Thessalonians 3.10, that if you don't work, you don't eat. Other passages of the Bible that dealt with economics very clearly set forth the free market system, which they first adopted, Matthew 19, Luke 20, and Matthew 25. All three have extensive teachings about Jesus' own economics, and they use those teachings. And so when they set up what we call the first free enterprise system in the new world in a thousand years, and the old world too, over in Europe, over here, first one in a thousand years or so, significantly when they set that up, the first free market business anywhere in Europe or over here was in 1627 Aptucket, Massachusetts. And Governor Bradford said at the time that they switched and left socialism and went to the free market, he said their productivity increased by sevenfold. He said there never was a time in the Massachusetts colony after that when they did not have plenty and abundance. So their productivity went through the roof because they made everybody supply for their own household. You supply for yourself, the government's not going to supply for you. So that's something we point to the programs with. In the same way, what they did with private property was significant. They landed in December of 1620. When they landed on the shores, there was not an Indian in sight and they never saw an Indian. And why would you? Because it's the middle of winter in Massachusetts, you're, you're somewhere being warm. So it was not until the next spring that they saw their first Indian, and that was Samoset. Samoset introduced them to Squanto, who introduced them to the chief Massasoit. They had a great relationship, made a treaty. And what happened was they said, look, all winter long, we've been living on somebody's land, and we don't know whose it is, but we know it's in our land. We would really love to have an agreement where we could buy some land. Is there any land available? So they had this private property concept because the Bible clearly says, even in the Ten Commandments, you don't take somebody else's private property. You don't even want somebody else's private property. So they worked with the Indians and said, we want to buy land. So the Indians sold them land. It's significant that one of their later governors, after William Bradford, Josiah Winslow, he said this. He says, I think I can safely say that the English did not possess one foot of land in this colony but what was fairly obtained by honest purchase of the Indian proprietors. Every square foot of land we have here, we have a title deed to it, and the Indians were satisfied and we were satisfied when that agreement was made. Every piece of property has a title deed to it. That's why the longest lasting treaty in American history is between the Pilgrims and the Wampanoag Indians. It lasted 54 years. When it was broken in 1676, it was the Indians who broke it, not the Pilgrims who broke it. So the respect for private property comes back to the Pilgrims, not to Jamestown. In the same way, 
If you look at what happened when they dealt with civil rights, just as Jamestown allowed slavery, they had to deal with that issue in the Plymouth colony as well. And in 1641, they are making their civil laws. It's going to go into a book. I'll show you in a minute, the Code of 1650. But they said all over the world is slavery. And every nation across the world had slavery of some type. And it was not a racial thing. Sometimes it was black on black. It could be white on white. In the same period, we had the African slave trade of 12.7 million slaves between 1501 and 1875. There were also a million white slaves marketed at that same point in time. And Native Americans, and Amer when Columbus landed in America, uh, anthropologists tell us that between 20 and 40% of all Native American tribes had slaves of other Native Americans. And actually, the highest, in 1865, when the Civil War ended, the highest percentage slave owner of black, sl black slaves were Native Americans. They had a higher percentage of black slaves than any other group in America. We never hear about that because we're told it's white on black. It's human on human because if you've got a sin nature, slavery is a problem, and everybody does it. And it was that way in the world. And so these guys said, well, we're not going to do this. And they quoted from Exodus 21:16. The Bible says that man-stealing is a capital offense. Uh, they said man-stealing, that's when you go to a country and you steal someone out of that country and take them to another country and you sell them into slavery. The Bible says that's a capital offense. So they made that their civil law. In 1646, a slave ship, the first slave ship, arrived in Plymouth. When it arrived in Plymouth, the captain got off, the officers got off, said, hey, we've got slaves, who need slaves? Boy, have we got a bunch of slaves for you. And the pilgrims said, you got what? We've got slaves. And so the pilgrims at that point freed the slaves, they imprisoned the captain and the officers, and they sentenced the captain and officers to death. And they said, wait a minute, you don't have slaves in Plymouth? Everybody's got slaves. We didn't know you had slaves. This is news to us. If we'd known, we wouldn't have come here. And the pilgrim said, point taken. Okay, here's the deal. We'll let you go now, but if you ever return to this colony with another load of slaves, we'll know that you know what was wrong then, and we will execute you at that point. But we'll let you off this time, but don't ever come back with slaves. So the first anti-slavery laws in America start with the pilgrims, and that has a long run. As a matter of fact, by the time you get to 1892, this is what's called an editorial cartoon in those papers. It's much more sophisticated than our editorial cartoons, but this ran in a 1792 newspaper. It's called the Equality Ball. And over here you have John Hancock, founding father. He's shaking hands with a black man named Paul Cuffey. Paul Cuffey is the wealthiest black man in America. He lives in Massachusetts. He and his sons run a global shipping business. They have ships that run all over the world. And they're celebrating the fact that in Massachusetts, blacks and whites have always been equal. As a matter of fact, this man, Robert Brown Elliott, who was an early congressman in 1870, he said there never was a time in Massachusetts when blacks and whites weren't equal and blacks and whites couldn't vote. I don't think that's in the 1619 project at all. Not at all. But see, this is the other side. This is a tale of two cities. This is what was going on in Plymouth. And so when you look, we're told today with critical race theory in 1619, oh, America's founded by a bunch of white guys. You know what? That is a bunch of white guys. Here's the deal. How do we know what they look like? Because nobody had cameras back then. Well, the deal is, if you did something really significant, they would take the time, effort, and money to make a painting of you. So if you were a governor, you got a painting. If you were a general, famous general, you got a painting. If you're a famous preacher, a famous educator, you get a painting. If you're a signer of the Declaration of Independence, they did paintings of them, signers of the Constitution. So when you look at these, that's a bunch of white guys. But you see, what we never talk about today is we don't look at the other paintings. Because there are so many paintings from the founding era that are of so many black significant heroes that most people have never even heard about today. 
And so we think it's all white because we never see all of these. And, and there's so many cool ones here. I mean, this guy, Jack Sisson, I'd call him probably the first SEAL team member. What he did in 1778, the Battle of Newport, 40 of them got together, special forces kind of stuff. Most amazing operation pulled off. It's a Hollywood movie waiting to happen. But who's hurt? Jack Sisson, or for, for that matter, I mean, even a John Chavez, or this, he's a Minuteman, the revolution. He's the first black man in American history to have a degree of higher education, Lemuel Haynes. Uh, he was a black pastor of white churches across New England. Uh, Peter Salem, the hero of the Battle of Bunker Hill. I mean, let's just go through all this. This guy right here, James Armistead, George Washington and Lafayette said if it hadn't been for James Armistead, this black patriot, we probably wouldn't have ended the revolution. He's the first double spy in American history, and he got Washington Lafayette the information on where Cornwallis is going to be, which is why they got there ahead of Cornwallis, and they trapped Cornwallis because of that double. We, we've not heard those names. And, and let me just take, take a couple more real quick. If I take this guy right here, Reverend Harry Hoosier. He was a preacher in the Second Great Awakening. And the Great Awakenings, you got all these famous guys. You got George Whitfield, and, and you got the Wesleys, and you got Francis Asbury. And all these guys are drawing 10, 20, 30,000 out into a pasture. People come and hear open air. It's interesting, Asbury, one of the most famous, he said, Harry draws larger crowds than I do. Really? Harry's got huge crowds? Benjamin Rush, the signer of the Declaration, said, I go to Harry's meetings. He's the greatest orator I've ever heard. Well, you're running around with Patrick Henry, and you, and you think Harry's better than... No, he's the greatest orator I've heard. Harry's ministry was really to blue-collar people. Don't know why, but blue-collar people really liked him. Rough-and-tumble guys, frontiersmen, woodsmen, outdoorsmen, uh, guys who liked exploring trailblazers. They cussed a lot, they drank a lot, they fought a lot, and they got converted under Harry's ministry, and they were still rough and tumble, but they didn't fight as much, and they didn't cuss as much, and they didn't drink as much, but they're still outdoorsmen. Now, Harry's ministry was along the East Coast. He was out of Philadelphia, and he preached up in Delaware and Jersey and all around the East Coast. But as America started moving west in the early 1800s, all these explorers of his, their converts, started going west too. And so as they get over into this western territory with all the other explorers, these other explorers look at Harry's converts and say, man, those guys sure act different. What's up with them? And the answer was, they're a bunch of those Hoosiers. <laughs> Most Americans have no clue that your state is named after a black evangelist. It would seem like if a guy had a state named after him, he might show up in somebody's history book. Rarely. Most people have no clue who Harry Hoosier is or his story or the remarkable things he did and how his converts are the, the guys that really considered the Hoosier state. The same thing happens not only with Harry here, but see that guy on horseback down at the bottom? His name is Wentworth Cheswell. Wentworth Cheswell made a Paul Revere-like ride in New Hampshire like Paul Revere did in Massachusetts. And he, as a black man in a white community, was elected to office in 1768. He was reelected for the next 49 years. He held eight different political positions in New Hampshire. He's considered the father of the library system in New Hampshire and father of the education system in New Hampshire and just a remarkable man that he is. And when you look at Harry Hoosier, he's elected office in 1768. Never heard him before. Well, it's not that he's the first by a long shot. You got to back up to Matthias de Souza. In 1641, Matthias de Souza, a black man, is living in Maryland. And he's chosen by his white community to be a member of the state legislature. So here's a black man elected to the state legislature in America in 1641. Do you know that by the time we get to 1876, 
There's been more than 1,000 black officials elected in America by 1876. Now, just to put that in context, nobody gives Great Britain a hard time for being a racist nation. When did Great Britain elect their first black individual to office? 1987. Let's take Russia, 2010. Take Italy, 2008. Wait a minute, we're 1641 and we're the bad nation? We don't have a clue of our own history. We are historically illiterate about so much of this, which is why critical race, they couldn't have taught critical race theory 30 years ago. We knew too much of our own history. We know so little of it now. We're told that we've always been racist and that blacks never had a part. Not by a long shot. However, returning back to the pilgrims, this is a great example. This is where so much of the right stuff starts. The same thing with education, because when they came over, they're bringing their families with them. They got a bunch of young kids, and, and they want their kids educated. So what they do is they pass the first public school law in America. Passed it in 1642, then again in 1647. It's included in the Code of 1650. So this is their code book from 1650. It has the first public school law in it. And the title of the first public school law is called the Old Deluder Satan Act. And that's an interesting title for a public school law. Why would they have called it the Old Deluder Satan Act? Because when you read the law itself, it says, it being the one chief project of that old deluder Satan to keep men from the knowledge of the scriptures that has informed them. Satan's always been about keeping people out of God's word, and that's what he did for 1,200 years across the whole world. That's what he wants to do now, but we ain't letting it happen here. We're going to make sure all of our kids know God's word so that we don't get into those abuses that we had for 1,200 years. So when you look at what happened here, this is the first public school law, and they said when you get 50 kids or 50 people into a community, you've got to get them a teacher. When you get 100 in your community, you got to build them a school. So they're really into education. Now, significantly, everybody needed to know God's Word. So what did they do in Massachusetts that wasn't being done in most of the world? They educated both boys and girls. Oh, that was new. Do you know that a backwood colony of Massachusetts had the highest literacy rate for women of any nation in Europe at that time? This little backwoods colony, why? Because they thought everybody needs to read God's word. Men, women, we don't care. In Christ, it's neither slave nor free, Jew nor Greek, male nor female. Everybody needs to know his word. So that's another significant thing from the pilgrims. And when you look specifically the legacy of the pilgrims, if, if you look up in that northern area where a lot of those colonies were founded the same way, the Connecticut colonies and the Rhode Island colonies and, and Jersey and all those other colonies were founded as biblical colonies, let me take you forward 170 years. Let me take you to New Jersey in 1816. Now, you guys, Indiana, you've got a lot of records. Every state does. You've got educational records that go back to your territorial days, that go back through your early statehood days, and you can check your historical records, your historical society, and it'll tell you how many schools you had, how many kids were in school, what the grades were being taught. We've got records on that from virtually every state. But I just chose New Jersey because it's typical of what, what we find throughout the records. So 1816, this is the State Board of Education report about schools in New Jersey in 1816. And looking at the 1816 report on New Jersey schools, they talk about what's called the first and the second classes. That's what we call first and second grade. So first and second classes, here's what they say. They say, all the scholars of the first and second classes commit to memory portions of the New Testament or Psalms, a lesson of the catechism, several hymns, and the text of the preceding Sabbath. So everybody in first and second grade memorizes Bible. What's the text of the preceding Sabbath? Whatever Micah preached about on Sunday, you're going to memorize every verse he talked about during the week. So whatever the texts were, yeah, exactly, Micah, there you go. 
<laughs> he goes for that. So this is what New Jersey public schools are doing in 1816. Yeah, and so were the other schools. I said we've got state records for so many of these states. But they pointed out that there was one kid in first and second grade that was a little sharper than the others. It says, one of the scholars had committed to memory the book of John and the first 30 Psalms together with the 119th Psalm. A first and second grader has memorized the Gospel of John and 30 Psalms and Psalms 119. That's a smart kid. They weren't all that smart. It says, the majority have committed to memory the Gospel by John. Every first and second grader memorizes the Gospel of John. Now, we did have one kid that also did 30 more chapters in Psalms and Psalm 119, but everybody does the Gospel of John. How many adults do you know that have memorized the Gospel of John today? And that was second grade public school material back in those days in New Jersey. And I, again, I can show you right up until 1963 when the Supreme Court said we're not doing Bible in public schools anymore. I take you back to 1844. The U.S. Supreme Court had a unanimous 8-0 decision that said if you get government funds, you are going to teach the Bible in schools. We're not going to fund a school that won't teach the Bible. See, we don't know that part of our history, and we think having the Bible not. If you want the Bible, go to a Christian school somewhere. Go, go to a private school. No, no, no. Everybody, because you needed to know the standards of right and wrong because it tells you about private property. It tells you about all the other things the pilgrims did. And by the way, there's one more I would point to in addition to education, and that's what we call due process. Those are your legal rights. When you get into a legal controversy, there are certain rules you have to follow. And this is where the pilgrims and Massachusetts gets criticized more, the pilgrims, particularly the Puritans. We're told they're the intolerant Puritans. And I don't care whether it's a public school history book or a Christian history, Christian school history book. I've seen it in every one of them that talks about the intolerant. And how do we know the Puritans were intolerant? Because they killed people who disagreed with them. Just look at the Salem witch trials. They came here, the Puritans, to have liberty. And then these other people who disagree with them, they kill them. Exactly what they were doing over in Europe. Boy, what a bunch of intolerant Christians. And if you look at the witch trials, there's no question that was wrong. And that was a blemish. And it's caused a, a if you will, that blemish to be on, on Christianity. Just question. With the witch trials, how many people were put to death in the Massachusetts witch trials? And this makes a difference. The answer is 27. Next question is, how long did the Massachusetts witch trials last? The answer is 18 months. Now, why does that matter? Because, just like slavery... They were, it was going on all over the world. There were witch trials across the world at that point in time. The witch trials in the rest of the world lasted over a century, 18 months in Massachusetts. You won't study the other witch trials, but you can look them up. Any encyclopedia is going to have it. But let's go back to this. So 27 deaths, 18 months instead of 10 decades, 100 years. Question would be, why did they stop after only 18 months if the rest of the world went for a, a, went for a century? The answer is three Christian leaders, Reverend John Wise, Reverend Increase Mather, and, Reverend, and layman Thomas Brattle, they went to Governor William Phipps and said, Phipps, what you're doing is copying what Europe is doing. Here's what the Bible says, and you're doing wrong because you're copying them and not the Bible. And so they went through the clauses in the Bible showing how trials should be conducted, and significantly, Phipps said, you're right. And he called in Judge Samuel Sewell, who was in charge of the witch trials, and he said, Sewell, what we're doing is wrong. And he showed him, and they looked at it and said, oh, my, we really sinned on this. Sewell stood up in front of church. He confessed in front of the church that he had been part of shedding innocent blood and asked for forgiveness for having done that. 
The governor then called for a colony-wide day of humiliation, fasting, and prayer, seeking to avert God's judgment for having shed innocent blood. They then took the people who had been involved in the legal process and removed their name off all the law books, all the law documents, because they were falsely charged and wrongly accused. They didn't have a due process. They should not be contaminated. They then paid restitution to all the families that had lost someone and been involved. They did everything they could to make it right after having done wrong. So they clearly did wrong, and they know they did wrong, but they stopped it fast. And just, just perspective, when you look at the rest of the world, look at Europe. How many were put to death in the witch trials in Europe? 500,000. Whoa, 27 in America, 500,000 in Europe? And all we want to talk about is America and not Europe? See, this is what we do today. We make America look as bad as we possibly can. America's got problems because it's got people. And as long as you've got people, you're going to make a lot of mistakes. But we get out of our mistakes a whole lot faster if we read the Bible and study the Bible, which is what happened with the pilgrims. The Bible is what got them out of that mistake faster than any other. And significantly, due process, I've been involved in 13 cases of the U.S. Supreme Court. And the most recent justice retired off the court was Stephen Breyer. I think, hands down, most, most scholars would agree that he's probably the most secular justice we've had on the court. And yet, Justice Breyer, in one of his decisions, said, well, we all know that the due process clause, and due process, this is like the fourth of the Eighth Amendment. This is the right to confront your accuser, the right to compel witnesses in your behalf, the right to speak in your own defense. All those things in the Fourth through the Eighth Amendment, that's due process. And, and Stephen Breyer said, well, we all know that the due process rights came out of the Bible. Really? Do we all know that? And that's the most secular justice saying that? I read that, and I read his footnote. And his footnote went to Federal Practice and Procedure. Volume 30 of Federal Practice and Procedure. Now, Federal Practice and Procedure are the law books you use if you're going to practice federal law. It's a series of law books that goes from here out the door and out in the parking lot. It's huge. Volume 30 deals with the due process aspects. And it's significant. There are 20 pages in there showing where due process rights came from. For example, the right to confront your accuser. According to Federal Practice and Procedure, that came out of John 8.10. Wow. What other rights? Well, you look at the right to compel witnesses in your behalf, Proverbs 18, 17. The right to speak in your own defense, Acts 22, 1. Bible verse after Bible verse that's given us the legal system we have, and we don't recognize, we think legal system is all secular, not so. So due process, there's so many good things that came from the pilgrims. And I told you that if you look at virtually any historical picture of them, you'll find them with the Bible, and you can see it here. They were called the people of the book. Their governor said that often they would spend two to three hours a day, each of them, reading the Bible, studying the Bible, because it's a new book for them. It's been put away for thousands of years, and they want to know what's in it. And they were willing to change the culture to match what the Bible said instead of Jamestown. Jamestown is willing to be part of the culture and wrap their Christianity around it. These guys didn't wrap their Christianity around the culture. They wrapped the culture around their Christianity and changed the culture. And so that's what you find with these guys that's so different. So they were strong professing evangelical Christians just like at Jamestown, but the difference were they were biblical Christians. And that's a big, big, big difference. Now, when you look at the 1619 versus 1620 project, that, that concept, this is a map that came out in 1888. And, and what I'm saying about comparing 1619, 1620, this is not a new concept. What this map shows, and you can see it a little bigger up here, but it's, this is a wall map that would have been in a school somewhere. So, you know, how wall charts hang up there. So you go over there and you read it, and you say, oh, here's a ship landing here. Well, that's Jamestown. And a second ship landing here, and, and that's up in Plymouth. 
And it's got some, some drawings here around it. And, and this one, the circle, if you can see up on the screen there, if I blow it up, it says mammon. What's mammon? Remember Jesus talked about that in Matthew? That's love of money. That's, that's money. That's, that's greed. And the other thing it says is one dollar. So what they've got there is a coin. And it says one dollar on it, and it's mammon. So that's a colony founded on the love of money, founded on economics. And look at the kind of fruits that came out of the colony, avarice and lust and ignorance and superstition and rebellion and Dred Scott decision, Kansas-Nebraska Act, the Fugitive Slave Law, the Compromise of 1850, the Missouri Compromise of 1820. All that bad stuff came out of that part of the country where there was all about economics, not about morality. Money is the most important thing. We've got to make a, a good bit of money. And then if you go to the other one, and by the way, they were all those professing Christians, the Jamestown Christians. If you go up to the other one, it's interesting. If you can see what it says there on the back of it, it says Bible. Oh, the Bible. Those were the colonies founded on the, the Bible. And if you look at them, it stretches across, and you've got all these good things like free schools and free speech and hard work and sobriety and morality and justice and patriotism and love of country and equal rights and intelligence. All the good things came out of the Bible side of things. So what you have, these are biblical Christians, and they had a whole different fruit. Even though both were professing Christians, knowing the Bible and living by the Bible made all the difference. So this map between these two, we have the debate now, not everything is 1619. Hey, they already knew that way back then. That's why we didn't have this debate decades ago or years ago, because we knew too much of our own history. So this is what it means, Revelation 1, Jesus Christ is made to be kings and priests, not or priests kings and priests. And that's what you find with the pilgrims. See, these guys were capable of being either one because they knew the Bible. Hey, this year it's your time to be the pastor, and this year you can be the governor. They could choose out from among them people to lead in the civil arena and the religious arena because they were well-trained in what the Bible said. Jamestown didn't have that. Jamestown was not capable of being kings and priests. They couldn't even be kings or priests. They had to import their priests and import their civil leaders. They didn't have them. From, they couldn't raise them from among them. So being kings and priests, that's what you see of the pilgrims. If you're equipped in God's Word, you handle the government area really well, and you handle the church area really well, and that's what He wants us to be. He has made us to be kings and priests in, in, in God. So Washington, 170 years after the pilgrims, talked about that, that vision that they had, the, the, the concept they had of what made us great, and he summarized it this way. He said, of all the habits and dispositions that lead to political prosperity, and I have to say, I own, by the way, this is farewell address, 1796, when he said this, it's the most significant political speech given by Washington is, is what historians believe, and I, I believe so too. If you were in public school in America up through the 1820s, once a year for your first eight years of school, you took a written exam on Washington's farewell address. That's how important it was. You needed to know this because this is, this is the whole key to staying on track as a constitutional republic. So we study that, and Washington says, of all the habits and of all the dispositions and habits that lead to political prosperity. Now, I'm intrigued with the word political prosperity today because there's not much of it. We're polarized, we're weaponized, we're trying to cancel the other side just as, as bad as we can. We see what's going on in the House of Representatives and can't choose a leader and can't function. The political prosperity is not there. Washington said, of all the dispositions and habits that lead to political pro if you want political prosperity, he said religion and morality are indispensable supports. Now, we're told, oh, Christians shouldn't get involved in politics. Oh, great. Let's take religion and morality out of politics. How well does that work for us? You don't get political prosperity when that happens. 
And so what's happened, we've been told that's a secular arena. Christians don't get in that arena. No, no, Christians need to get in that arena if you want political prosperity because religion and morality is the basis of political prosperity. He continued, he said, in vain would that man claim the tribute of patriotism who should labor to subvert these great pillars. He says, guys, I know a patriot when I see one. I had him eight years in the revolution. I had him at Valley Forge. And I'm just telling you, anyone who tries to separate religion and morality from public affairs, I'm not going to let them call themselves a patriot. Now, that's Washington's litmus test for patriotism. If you want a secular public square, you ain't a patriot in his viewpoint, and he knows what a patriot is. There's nothing back there that says we're supposed to be a secular public square, but we bought that because of our education in recent years. So when you look at where we are, political prosperity is the result of religion and morality. Now, how do we measure religion and morality? There's a lot of ways of doing it. We're actively engaged in a lot of polling. We work with people like George Barn and others, and some of the the groups that, that keep track of religion and morality would include the American Bible Society. Uh, the American Bible Society is the largest Bible society in the world. They get about 250 million Bibles every year. And the American Bible Society was started by our founding fathers. This was started in 1816 by signers of the Constitution, justices in the U.S. Supreme Court, etc. Our founding fathers started the American Bible Society knowing how important it was. And so every year they do what's called the State of the Bible Report. The State of the Bible Report, this one says 2022. And this is after COVID. And we've been seeing Bible reading in America slowly decline for several decades. But when we got to 2022, it just took a nosedive. It went off the end of the chart. And in that one year alone, we lost 25 million Americans who no longer even cracked the book at all. So we've been going down for a number of years. And then one year we lose 25 million. And then the report came out for this year, and this year we're down another 3 million on top of the drop from last year. So we're down 28 million Americans in the last two years. That's not religion and morality, which is why you don't have political prosperity. See, the more secular you become, the more you look like France and Germany and everybody else. In the time that we've had one constitution, France has had 15 constitutions. That's not political stability. That's not political prosperity. So we're seeing this decline going on. And the result is that right now, only one in 16 Christians or only 6% have a biblical worldview. For example, if I said, what did Jesus say about minimum wage? You should tell me. He's got a great teaching on that in Matthew 20. What did Jesus say about the capital gains tax? You should tell me. Well, he's got two teachings on that, one in Luke 19 and one in Matthew 25. See, all these things are dealt with in the Bible. It's just that we don't know it today. They knew it back then. And did you know the Bible deals with estate taxes, inheritance taxes, flat taxes, capitation taxes, progressive taxes? All that's in the Bible. The Bible's a great economic book, which is how we got the first free enterprise economic system because of all the economic guidance in the Bible. So that's a biblical worldview. Only one in 16 can put the Bible beside current events that are in the news. Only one or only 9% of Christians read the Bible on a day basis, and that's for Christians. That's not the rest of the nation. We're just talking Christians. Only one out of 11 Christians reads the Bible on a daily basis. We're becoming more like Jamestown and less like the pilgrims. Pilgrims spent time in God's Word, which is why they were kings and priests. They could handle both of those arenas. So if you look at the biblical literature we have now, it affects the way that we see God's institutions. We have traditional belief there are three institutions God has given. The first one is that of the family, Genesis 1, 2, and 3. God made Adam. He made Eve. He put them together. They had children. God said, this is good. We call that the family. Now, it's interesting. The more secular we become, the less we know how to define a family. 
Um, if you go back to what God said, four times back then, he said, and God made them male and female, male and female made he them. Male and female, two genders. We weren't questioning that 20 years ago. If you haven't kept up with it, just a couple months ago, they had corporate training where they trained the corporate people that there are now 150 different genders identified in America. We have 150. We're crazy. There, and if you doubt there's a, let me, let me just stop for a minute. I'm a cowboy from Texas, got my boots on, but I've got the pickup, I've got the horses, I've got the cows, I've got the ranch, got everything that goes with it. And you may know nothing about ranching. You may not know anything about roping or, or tying cows. You may not know any of that. That's all right. If I, I can take any of you to my ranch in Texas, I can put any of you behind my cattle herd. Every single one of you can accurately identify the gender of every critter I've got in my cattle herd. <laughs> and you're only going to find two genders. And it's not going to be hard to tell which is which. The more secular we become, the less we know what the family is. The second institution God creates is that of civil government. After Cain kills Abel and the whole thing goes downhill and rape and pillage and murder, God says, okay, let's just wipe them out and start again. So we have the flood. God saves Noah and his family. When Noah gets off the ark in Genesis 9, in verse 6, God says, Noah, whosoever sheds man's blood, by him will man's blood be shed. Oh, that's capital punishment. That's the first civil law given in the Bible. It's given to Noah. Hebrew scholars tell us that is the Noahide laws. They point to that as the basis of civil government, those Noahide laws that God gave Noah. And so that's where we look at for the origin of civil government. The third institution would be that of the church. Now, the church is not necessarily an Old Testament institution, but it does have types and shadows. If you go back in the Old Testament, when God was established in his nation, he says, Okay, I want my people coming together as a congregation. I want them over at the tab tabernacle worshiping me. That's kind of the early type and shadow of the church. So God had a, that, that kind of set up where that he had people coming and worshiping him. So we would call that the church. Now, interestingly, of those three, Christians today usually know less about government than they do about the other two. We can usually find more verses on the first two than government, but that was not an issue in previous generations. So I'll take you to John Locke. And John Locke did a book called The Two Treatises of Government. Now, this is a significant book. Richard Henry Lee is the signer of the Declaration who made the motion that we should separate from Great Britain, led to the Declaration of Independence. So he made the motion, he signed the Declaration. Richard Henry Lee said, quote, the Declaration of Independence was copied out of Locke's two treatises on government. Ah, this is where we got the Declaration out of here. You know, this little book, and we've got the book, and you can buy a reprint of it. It's less than an inch thick. It's less than 400 pages long. It references the Bible more than 1,500 times to show the proper operation of civil government. 1,500 verses on government? Get most Christians together and you might come up with six or eight or ten if we really thought hard. No, there's so much more back there, but we've been told this isn't what Christians do, and so we think it's not really part of God's plan. So these institutions, God wants us to, to be involved with all that. We've kind of stayed out of government. And that's shown even by what Chad was talking about earlier with voting. Uh, to vote in America, there are three requirements. Two are constitutional, one statutory. The two constitutional requirements are if you're 18 years old and if you're a legal citizen, you can vote. And so 100% of 18-year-olds who are legal citizens can vote. The third requirement, statutory, says we need you to register to vote. Why? Because we want to make sure you don't vote 10 times or somebody doesn't vote 10 times in your name, voter integrity. So we want you to register. 
Here's where it starts falling apart. Out of roughly 290 million adults that we have in America, only 65.3% are registered. So this is what Chet was talking about. About 90 million adults cannot vote in any election, and about 40 to 50 million of those are evangelicals. Now, can you imagine how different the climate would look today politically, civically, educationally, if those 50 or so million evangelicals were to even cast a remote look at biblical values in the votes that they cast? It could be a whole different culture. But this is, when you look at these numbers, there's two types of elections, major elections in America. The first, the biggest one is always the presidential elections. That's what we're facing in a year. And presidential elections for the last 10 presidential elections, in other words, the last 40 years, the average voter turnout in presidential elections is 58% or 54%. But that's 54% of registered voters. That means 54% is 65%. Only 36% of adults vote in presidential elections. It takes half of that to win. The elections we had last year are off-year elections. This is when we choose governors, U.S. senators, congressmen, state legislators. The average voter turnout for the last 21 off-year elections, the last 42 years, the average voter turnout has been 38%. But that's 38% of registered voters, which is 38% of 65%, which makes it 26% of adults vote for governor and senator and congressman. And it takes half of that to win, which is 13%. So what you're looking at is in the last 10 presidential elections, one out of five Americans chooses the president of the United States. Four out of five Americans did not choose the president we have now. Four out of five Americans did not choose the president we had before. It's one out of five that chooses the winning candidate. And when you get to governors and Congress and others, you're looking at one out of eight. That seven out of eight did not choose the Congress we have right now. One out of eight did. And then when you go to local elections, it drops down to about 6%. But that's 6% of registered voters, that's 6% of 64%, 65%, which puts it 4%, which means it takes 2% to win. Let me give you two examples. If you were to go to Los Angeles, Eric Garcetti just finished there as mayor. Um, Los Angeles is the second largest city in the United States. The population of Los Angeles is larger than the population of 23 separate states. Los Angeles has a population bigger than Indiana, okay, just the city itself. So if you're Eric Garcetti, mayor of Los Angeles, that's like being governor in 23 states. Eric Garcetti, absolutely hostile to the church, to religion, to Christianity. When COVID came, everything can stay open except the churches. They are absolutely not essential, but everything else is. Eric Garcetti brags about the fact he was elected with 2.9% of the vote. There's enough churches in Los Angeles to have anybody they want for mayor. They got Eric Garcetti because it's 2.9%. If you go to my state of Houston, Houston's the fourth largest city in the nation. And Houston, the population of Houston is larger than the population of 20 separate states. Elected Anise Parker as mayor. She's the first open lesbian mayor in Houston. When she got in, she passed a city law that said, if you say marriage between a man and a woman, that is now a crime in the city of Houston. She then subpoenaed 17 different forms of, of communication from pastors. Pastors, I want to see your sermon notes. I want to hear any published sermons, you, reading published sermons, any sermons you preach on radio or TV. I want to see them. I want to see all your text messages, all your social media. I want to see all your phone messages. And if you said that marriage between a man and a woman, I've got you. That's a crime in Houston. She's elected with 3.3% of the vote. I know enough churches in Houston. They could have anybody they want to for mayor. But see, this is what happens, particularly at local elections. 
And so Christians have backed out of this process, and it's not that politics is dirty, it is if we get out, but we should be involved. What, what keeps us from being involved? Why is it Christians won't get involved? And I've heard lots of reasons. I, I've heard over the years a number of reasons, and probably the one I hear most often deals with eschatology, and that's the study of the end times. This is end times, Jesus' return, etc. And eschatology, the study of the end times, let me just kind of address something real quick. The end time. I, I believe the Bible is God's inspired, inerrant, infallible word. I believe every word in it is right and accurate from God. The Bible, in its inspired writings, both Peter when he's writing and Paul when he's writing, both of them say they are living in the last days. That's what they said. What's that mean? It means the last days last at least 2,000 years because we think we're living in the last days. They were. So how long do the last days last? Don't know. But they're still going. So what happens is every single generation of Christians since the time of Jesus have thought they were living in the last days. If you read Columbus's writings when he came to the New World, he was writing in his own journal. He said, I've talked to every major theologian in Egypt or in, in Europe, and they all agreed that Jesus will return within the next 155 years. Why 155? I don't know. But they said that's when all the prophecies will be fulfilled. Well, Sam Adams, Sam Adams said, I've talked to the American theologians and they all think that the end of the age will be before the 1800s because every prophecy has been fulfilled for the return of Christ. So every generation has thought they were in the last days. I want to take you back to something that happened in Connecticut in May of 19th, 1780. On that day in Connecticut, the sun did not rise. It stayed black all day long. Now that scared them, as you can imagine. If you went outside in the morning and the sun never came out and it stayed black all day, if the night continued for another 24 hours, it would scare you. It would scare a lot of people, and it did them because they had no, this has never happened before. Well, what they didn't know was there had been a massive fire up in Canada and that smoke blew in over the top of them and a fog came over the top of the smoke and held it down so they couldn't see anything. The sun wasn't there. It was all gone. And they walk outside and everything is black and they can't, see. and so they're really concerned. And so what happened was when they got together in the legislature and they, they said, this is the great and terrible day. This is judgment day. It is today. I mean, look at it. It's, it's happened. So this is what is going on in their conversations. And so as they meet in the Senate that day, what they said was, this is judgment day. We need to adjourn and go home. We shouldn't even be out today. This is the day. And at that point, a guy named Abraham Davenport had a statement to make, a pretty profound statement. He is a strong Christian guy. So many of those guys, Connecticut, that's up there in that Bible belt of New England at that point in time. Their governor, John Trumbull, strong man. He was actually a theologian. Um, Roger Sherman from Connecticut, a legislator. He signed the Declaration of Constitution. He wrote the doctrinal creed for his denomination in Connecticut. I mean, there's just a lot of Bible-centered people up there. And Abraham Davenport says, well, he says, the day of judgment is either approaching or it's not. Well, that's true. But those two options give you two courses of action. So he explained. He said, it's either approaching or it's not. He said, if it's not approaching, then there's no cause for an adjournment. As strange as this looks, if this is not the day of judgment, there's no reason for us to go home and hide. It doesn't make any sense. He says... If this is, he says, I choose to be found doing my duty. So if this is the day of judgment, if this is when Christ is returning, what do we know? that He just quoted a Bible verse, but he concluded this way. He says, I wish, therefore, that candles may be brought. What's that? 
There's a famous painting inside the Connecticut legislature. It is this painting here, and it's of them bringing candles so they continue their work. We don't know if this is Judgment Day or not, but we're supposed to be working till he gets here. Remember what Jesus said in Luke 12, 43? He says, Blessed is that servant whom his Lord, when he cometh, shall find so doing. If this is Judgment Day, great. Jesus needs to find us busy when we get back. We're not supposed to be sitting around doing nothing, waiting for him to return. He says, Blessed is that servant that when I return, I find doing. And that's the same thing you find in Luke 19, 13, where Jesus says, Occupy till I come. And that was their mindset. Until Jesus comes back and takes me out of here, I'm going to be working right up until the second he comes. So there's no reason to say, hey, all the prophecies fulfilled, it doesn't make any difference, we can't make any difference. Yes, we can, because we don't even know when that day is, and that's what they understood. So they didn't back out of involvement because of eschatology. So looking at all three of those institutions, they're really significant. We'd be involved in all of them. And I'll close with a couple of quotes. The first quote comes from Thais Burnett, and it illustrates they had another consideration when they talked when they thought about being a, a steward of the country. This is what he said. He said, to God and posterity, you're accountable for your rights and your rulers. Now, I know about standing before God at, at the judgment. He tells us about that. We know out of 1 uh, Corinthians 4, we'll answer for our thoughts. Jesus tells us Matthew 12, we'll answer for all of our words. Hebrews 4 tells us we'll answer for all of our actions. I know that standing in front of God and being judged, understand that. I'd never thought about posterity, being judged by posterity, because I got more white hair than most of you do. Go back to when I was younger, America's gone the wrong direction the last 40, 50 years. Who do we blame for that? The kids? No, can't blame the kids. They can blame us for it, because we've checked out in so many areas. He said, let not your, he, he said, to God and posterity, you're accountable for your rights and your rulers. He said, let not your children have reason to curse you for giving up those rights and prostrating those institutions which your fathers delivered to you. I'd never thought of stewardship in the sense of the next generation. What do we pass on to them? Is it going to be better? We hope every time that we leave them something better than we got. It's not going that way right now because, again, we've checked out where that we're only looking at 93% at of people voting in local elections. That's why our school boards have become so crazy. That's why the libraries are filled with all the wrong stuff. That's why we've got the craziness we got going is because it's 3% running it. So the other quote I'll give you is from Charles Finney. He was a great revivalist. He was in the Second Great Awakening. As a matter of fact, it's estimated that in one year, 1857, 1858, in that year, he personally led 100,000 people to Christ. Now, he was very big into being involved in the civic arena. And he was a revivalist, and, and he wrote a book in 1830 on how to have revivals. And his thing was, guys, you don't need to pray for a revival. If you do what God told you to do, you'll get a revival. And he looked at what we call the if-then verses, 2 Chronicles 7:14. If my people, which are called by my name, will then I'll. So that's an if-then. If we'll do what God told us, then we'll get the results he promised. So he said, if you want a revival, just do all the ifs, and he'll give you the then. You don't have to pray for the then. Now, praying is part of it, but if you do what he says, you'll... And so that's what he looked at. So he went through the Bible and looked at the if-then verses. What does it take to have a revival? And he then had that in lectures and then turned it into a book. And so lecture number 15, this is what he says in lecture 15. He says, the church must take right ground in regard to politics. Politics are part of a religion such as this, and Christians must do their duty to the country as part of their duty to God. He said, 
God will bless or curse this nation according to the course that Christians take in politics. That's interesting. He had a college he ran, Oberlin College. Don't go there today. It's one of the most liberal, wacky colleges in the United States. Back then, it was a Bible college. And to be at his Bible college, every student had to be involved actively in politics. Matter of fact, if you went to his college, you were an active member of the Underground Railroad. You were moving people. and You had to be involved. You cannot be at his college and not be involved in what's going on in the culture. And that was the belief that we had throughout that period of time. So this, that if you don't get involved, God will bless or curse, that was lecture number 15, which is called Hindrances Revival. He said, if you stay out of the civil arena, you will kill revivals from hell. You're praying for revival? Good. Get involved in politics, because if you stay out, you won't have a revival. What does that mean? It means the same thing we're seeing across the nation, and we have seen for 40 or 50 years, where revival breaks out, kids want to express their faith, and they get squelched at school. We want to express our faith at work, and we get stepped on at work. It's like, if that keeps up, we'll be like the underground church in China. We can't express our faith. Now, I will tell you, the Supreme Court in the last, let me back up, since 1963, when the court went anti-Christian, anti-religious, anti-biblical, over the next several decades, we average winning one religious liberty case every five to eight years. Now, they do about 100 cases a year. That means we're winning one case out of every 500 to 800. Since 2019, in four years, we've won more than 15 cases at the U.S. Supreme Court. And the result is that Christians today have more religious liberty rights than they've had in nearly 60 years. The court in 2022 vacated 7,300 previous decisions that were anti-religious. It's okay to do those things now, but if you do, you're going to have a school board attorney say, you can't do that. You're going to have to sue, and then you'll win, you'll win the suit because the Supreme Court has said this stuff is okay. It's just that most people down where we live have never heard that. So we're going to have to go fight to get this back. Did you know you can have the Bible back in schools now? Right now, there are 1,200 school districts in the United States, 200,000 kids, and they're teaching the Bible in public schools as a course for credit in public schools. That can be done. Most people have no clue that can be done. There's stuff like... When in the case in 2022, Texas is now introducing a law to put the Ten Commandments up in every single classroom in the state of Texas. And Louisiana's picking that up, and Arkansas is picking that up, and Oklahoma. These things are changing now, but it's only if we go on the offensive. If we don't get involved, that's a hindrance to revival. Because all these areas, they'll continue to squash religious expression every chance they get. And so what good does it do if you get lit up and all on fire for Jesus if they crush you when it happens? So that's the challenge I'll leave you with is that it, it, it just goes back to where we started. Revelation 1, 5, and 6, Jesus Christ has made it kings and priests. We all need to be in both arenas. We need to be competent for either one. I mean, quite frankly, that's the only way we're going to have political prosperity. And that really means being more like pilgrims. So I challenge every one of you to become more like a pilgrim. Don't become Jamestown Christians. Don't get squeezed into the culture or let the culture squeeze you. Turn around and be a pilgrim Christian where maybe you have to spend two, three hours a day in the Bible learning God's Word, rethinking economics, rethinking education, rethinking criminal justice or whatever. That's all in there. So that's the challenge I'll leave you with. If this is new to you, uh, back of the back we have a book called The American Story, which goes to that pilgrim and, and Jamestown contrast. And there's also the Founder's Bible. It'll show you the Bible verses the Founders use to create the policies we have today, they, the Bible verses they identify. So that's a little information about that. Chad, back to you, bro.
Y'all give David a hand. I know y'all do all that. I think since we've been in the room, we've had like four different versions of what, where Hoosiers came from. So how many of y'all actually have heard that before? Very few. That's good. That's really good. Well, David's awesome. Y'all have a phenomenal pastor. I, I, I love Micah Beckwith and the leadership. We need that kind of leadership. So y'all take care of him and his family and, and make sure other people duplicate what he's doing. If you're going to a church that's different, get your pastors to get involved. Teach them this stuff. That book, The American Story, just finished reading it for the second time a couple months ago. Short little stories. Read to your kids. Read to your grandkids. They're not getting this stuff, y'all. They're not getting the truth. The, the Founder's Bible, quote after quote after quote, I use it in my Sunday school class. I use it in teaching stuff. He's done the research for all of us. We need your help. We can't do this alone. There's a QR code. Nobody over 12 understands them, but if you hold your camera phone, I don't know, but if you put your camera on, it'll take you to this. I will not bug you, but it'll give me your email list. When we start recruiting poll watchers, when we start doing voter registration, we will tell you about it. When I have David Barton coming around, when we do more of these meetings, I have a sneaking suspicion since Indiana has a Senate race, we will be back here. We will expect y'all to bring other people. Y'all know people need to hear this message. Anybody else in Indiana need to hear this message? Would it help your state? So if you'll go to this, put your camera phone, I see a lot of y'all doing that. You gotta probably pull it in. Sometimes it washes out in a room with lights and whatnot. You'll enter your county and your state, your name, your, uh, and we'll leave it up because some of y'all got a weird angle. I see that and I understand that too. Uh, but it'll put your email address. We will keep you updated on what's going on because I believe it's time for God's people to rise back up and take the nation back. I think a lot of people are waking up out there to what you heard tonight and they're understanding this is up to me. Now's our time. Pastor Micah, if you want to come up and close in prayer, brother. God bless y'all. Thank y'all so much for having us. We're honored. Love you, brother. Love you too, man. Thank you so much. Wasn't that phenomenal? Give it up for these guys. Man. I tell you what, every time, I mean, I've, I've had the privilege of hearing David and Chad, and every time I leave encouraged, I leave more equipped to go out and defend what God is calling us to do in our nation, and now it's our job to do that collectively. So uh, we're going to do a couple things. I know David's going to be around. If you want to get him to sign a book, I think he's going to come down here. Uh, at least that's what his lovely wife Cheryl said, so I don't know if David knows that yet, but Cheryl said that he'll be down here to sign books. Uh, afterwards, and Chad would love to talk with you. I'd love to talk with you. Um, please know there's the candidates that, are, that have come. You can go out in the lobby and get some of their information. Uh, you can register for mailing lists and and uh, so just please take a moment and do that as well. Uh, hey, just so you know, Pastor Nathan, uh, who's the lead pastor of Life Church, he was bummed he couldn't be here tonight. He had another conflict. He had a minister's conference. Uh, you know, someone had to go up and, uh, and do the work of the ministry up in Lafayette. And so I said, well, Nathan, sorry, man. Like, I'll stay down here. You can go up and do that. He was not happy with me. I'm going to tell you that right now. He was not happy with me. He is bummed that he couldn't be here because he loves David and Chad as well. But just know that 
um, if, if you go to another church in the area and you would like uh, your church to do something like this, this is what it's about. Take this message back to your pastor. They can call me. They can call Nathan. Uh, we would be absolutely blessed to help them do this at your church as well. So this is a capital C church mission. This is not just Life Church. This is about the church. And so uh, take this message everywhere you go, and, uh, and we would be glad to help you with that. This is also going to be on our Jesus, Sex, and Politics podcast. So I'm going to take the audio, and we're going to put it up uh, on Friday. It'll come out, so you can download that and listen to all this again. If you're like me, I'm like, Hold on a second, David. Slow down, man. I can't, I can't keep. I was like trying to keep notes and like taking pictures. Like, no, no, go back to that screen. <laughs> I literally, it was the Harry Hoosier screen, and it, and it, and it, like in the middle of my picture, it's like fading away, and I'm like, no, I wanted that picture. So, but we're also going to put this, the video on uh, the LifeChurchIN.com website as well, so you can go and you can watch that as well. So, so give it a few days, it'll be up, and then we'll put a link up uh, as well on social media. So, all right, well, I think that's everything. Uh, again, thank you guys for being with us. Let me pray for us, and then we'll, uh, we'll send everyone out. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this amazing night. Thank you for the knowledge and the, the gift that you have given both Chad and David to come and encourage us and to teach us and to equip us. Father, I pray that you would uh, give us just amazing recollection to know these facts and this truth so that when we're out and we're defending against people who are who are offended by truth when we are defending truth and and the people who are pushing error come at us and tell us no we're wrong and there's no place for Christianity in our nation would you give us recollection to remember what our, what you have said in your word and what our founders knew to be true about what you have said and let us be people who speak that out God would you raise up godly men and women all over our communities our state and our nation God to lead people in the way of that is the everlasting way. Just like Jeremiah says, take us back to the crossroads and let us go back to the everlasting, the ancient way, the old pathway that you have set up for us to go, Father. Lord, we know without you, we have no hope, but with you, we have all hope. And so give us that hope, give us joy that is our strength as we go out and fight for the future of our nation. We love you, we praise you. It's in Jesus' mighty name we pray. And everybody said, Amen. All right, guys, thank you so much. We'll see you around. We are the chosen generation, baptized with tongues of fire. Believe in the promises. We're going to see what the prophets